Hi, and welcome to That Podcast, episode 11. I'm Dave. And I'm Bo. And I've got nothing, nothing this week. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think the last time you, you actually said that, uh, you ended up having a lot. Like, basically, every everything that we talked about, you were like, oh, oh, wait, this. So, this will be fun. We'll see if that happens again. <laughs> well, yeah. See, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on a bit of a ghost load today, so I don't know if my brain will work that, quick, like that quickly and react to uh, things or recall things. Nice. Too many sleepless nights. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I finally got to listen to a podcast yesterday. Now that it's finally in the um, below freezing weather, um, I've decided that now is a good time to start taking walks again. Uh-huh. Um, and <laughs> uh, it worked. It worked about as well as you'd expect. But um, I put everything on my little little iPod Shuffle, um, so I'm hoping that I'll be able to. Uh, go and do some things with that now. So, but one of the things I noticed, uh, it's the, ep- it's one of the episodes r- very shortly before the, um, uh, their summit thing. Mm-hmm. And they sounded very aggressive, like not friendly toward each other. And it seemed really, really, I felt uncomfortable for them. Do, do you remember uh, hearing that one? On texting, right? Yeah, on texting. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't remember hearing it, but, but yeah, they definitely, I guess they're, you know, they're friends and sometimes mm-hmm. they have disagreements. I mean, it, I, didn't, I didn't really feel uncomfortable, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're def- the thing is they have vastly different characters. They clearly get on. Yeah. But they are a bit chalk and cheese, aren't they? And that's bound to rub each other the wrong way every now and then, I guess. Yeah. It was just, it was, uh, you know, I only had like, you know, 20 minutes to listen and pretty much throughout that first 20 minutes, I would say half of it was... I just felt very awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, like if I was in that room, I probably would have been like wandering into another room or something. It was really bizarre. They were, um, they were talking about the planning process and how one of them was doing most of the planning. And he was basically saying if the other guy had done it, it never would have gotten done. <laughs> the other guy was like, yeah, well, you would, you, you know, yeah. that, that's who you are. You're the micromanager. So I didn't even offer to help or something like that. It, they just went back and forth. And I was like, wow, that was kind of kind of bizarre <laughs> but yeah anyway no, i remember now yeah yeah so if uh i i, I hope that we don't ever do that <laughs> on our podcast because uh at least at least to that level because that just that to me felt almost like they'd been doing this for too long <laughs> because yeah, they were well, <laughs> yeah well i suppose there's that, that divide isn't there i mean we're separated by an ocean um and they would they were organizing something together you know just like in in the past they've worked together on projects um Mm -hmm. you know that kind of makes a difference doesn't it Um, yeah anyway i thought it was interesting that i'd uh i've finally been able to listen to a podcast and like and it was just kind of a a weird one to listen to i guess i'm like all right well i'll listen to the rest of the episode now some other some other day on a walk so it's it's not not the first time it's happened though because they worked on a a product together called anyfu mm-hmm and during the development sort of phase, um, I think Jason, he's the one who like wants everything his way and this is, he wants to do things a particular way. And, uh, he ended up doing most of the development work despite them both being programmers because he had his ideas and how it was going to work and kind of wanted to do it all himself. Um, and that kind of made a bit of a rift between them because it was a business. They were trying to make money from it and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet it seemed like Jason was doing most of the work. Um, in the end, uh, Justin actually ended up putting money into the business uh, as to compensate. And and yeah, well, 
Well, actually, technically, he was supposed to do a particular amount of marketing, and he didn't get around to doing it. So he actually put money into the business to pay somebody. Uh, but yeah, hmm. so it's it's happened before. It's just uh, their personalities and they clash a little bit in that respect. Yeah, you. you how long have you been listening to them? I don't know. I tried to uh, tried to think about this the other day, and I couldn't. I couldn't get it. I, what I need to do is go back through the, the episodes on the site. And I think, judging by some of the show notes, uh, I'll be able to guess roughly. But it's been mm. maybe three to four years at least. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I've only been listening since earlier this year, like January or so. So um, so I, you, you have you have seen them go through these ups and downs and whatnot. And yeah, definitely. for me, it was just like, wow, these two don't sound like they're going to get along much longer <laughs> um, but, but, but they're really honest about it and i can mm-hmm. say that whole episode where they, they i don't know if they fell out but they there was like they went uh, like maybe three or four weeks without an episode and then they actually came clean and said look we had a bit of a disagreement mm-hmm. you know regarding this it's all sorted now this is and they actually told us you know on mm-hmm. the podcast what the disagreement was how they'd gone about talking about it how they resolved it nice. so it's quite interesting and that's pretty much them and their mm. podcast, you know, they they come cl- they talk about everything. Yeah, uh, if they can do, um, they're both working for fairly big companies now, who obviously have confidential things that they can't disclose on the web on the podcast. But any mm. of their own projects, they they're quite happy to talk about. So, yeah. Cool. Speaking of that, uh, just I was actually discussing something not quite the same, but similar. Um, we were, I was discussing uh, weddings with somebody yesterday, and we were talking about how. This was definitely my experience during the build-up to our wedding. Um, my wife, she wanted me my input in all the decisions, but secretly I was just sort of passively saying things because I always felt like she made up her mind. So, you know, I mean, you can imagine, okay, we've got these flowers, these flowers, these flowers. What do you think? I was always like, well, yeah, I kind of like all of them because I really knew that she'd already made her mind up <laughs> about which flowers she wanted, but she wanted me to be part of the process, but she obviously wouldn't want me to not want the flowers that she wanted, if that makes sense. Yeah. But Beck and I have that same sort of thing pretty often where she'll say, well, what do you th- should I do this or this? And I'll give her you know, my, my honest opinion, like, well, I think you should do that. Well, I, I think I'm going to do this. <laughs> so, so we, we, uh, joke about that quite a bit that, you know, it doesn't really matter what I'm going to say because she's, already, she, I mean, she's asking me just basically for, for validation. Um, uh, but she's, it's most of the time she already knows what she's going to do. And, uh, we've actually found Luke doing that as well. Um, like he'll say, you know, do you want a color with me? I'll be like, yeah, sure. I'll color with you, buddy. What color do you want me to be? He said, well, what color do you want? And I'll say, well, how about green? And he said, how about red? And then he'll hand me red. And it's like, why, why did you ask me what color I wanted to be? Because you were going to give me whatever color you wanted to. Um, so, uh, we keep seeing little, little bits of each other in Luke, which is pretty awesome. So that, that's one of the things that I think he gets from her, um, because, yeah, because she she does she does she doesn't do that all the time, but per, sometimes she'll come to me with some of those questions. I'll be like, "Yeah, you you already know which one you want, right?" And she'll kind of smile. Yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> yeah, do you just um, I, Evie can do that as well, or just what you described with Luke. But the nice thing is, Evie uh, actually confuses red and green all the time, and I don't mm. know, don't know where she's got it from, but she does. 
So in that it's, instance, I would actually have got what I wanted. Oh, nice. Is yeah. is she colorblind? Well, I don't know. Um, now, red and green, are, there is a red-green colorblind, mm-hmm. but Rebecca says that uh, girls can't get can't be colorblind. Uh, they're really? only a carrier. I might be wrong. Um, but yeah, um, I don't. I don't know. I I just assume I don't understand how that would work. If you're red, green, color blind, I'm, I I was under the impression that means you can't distinguish them. Is that right? Yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but that's sort of what it sounds like. You look at something and you you just can't tell if it's red or green. Yeah, and but Evie definitely can tell the difference, mm-hmm. but she gets the names the wrong way around. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if you're red, green, color blind, does that mean if you saw red and green on the same screen, they'd look very similar or? Yeah, I don't, I don't Cause, know. Because, I mean, we only know what's blue because someone's told us it's blue, mm-hmm. right? So, I don't know. I don't know how it works. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't either. Should should really for accessibility and all that kind of uh, thing, but I don't know. No. Moving on. Moving on. Um, I wanted to throw our podcast voicemail number out again. Uh, since we've we've been getting a few of those, I uh, hope everyone enjoyed uh, Jeremy's uh, little bit uh, last time from our big number ten episode. Uh, the voicemail number, if you're interested in leaving us feedback or uh, comments or anything that you'd like to add to the the podcast, is plus one nine seven nine three five three zero one zero zero. Uh, and yeah, so, and Dave created that app. So if anyone's interested in using that app for their own purposes, uh, that's up on our, that podcast GitHub. If you go to GitHub slash that podcast, I think it's just called voicemail, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe, uh, the next time we're at a big conference, we should, uh, print up some business cards with the, with the voicemail number on. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. That'd be a good idea. Speaking of conferences, I'm, I finally have returned from my last one. Um, mm-hmm. that I have planned for this year, uh, PHP World. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C., which I had never been to before, uh, anywhere on the East Coast. Um, I did get to see a lot of cool things. Uh, I, I think a couple of people went down to the National Mall, or I think that's what it's called, um, and got some really great pictures next to the Washington Monument and Lincoln Memorial and all these different places. Um, I got to see the Washington Monument from my drive, so <laughs> that was kind of cool. Um, but we didn't. I, I didn't actually get to go do anything. Um, family didn't come with me on this one. Which was uh, kind of a bummer, but also kind of nice. Um, she got to spend a bunch of time with her sister. Uh, so Luke got to spend time with the twins again. I think like three days or four days almost. So they had a lot of fun. Um, the conference went pretty well. Uh, I did my composer tutorial. It's the first time I've done a tutorial. I, had a, um, I created a nice little isolated network using Torrent Proxy to uh, allow everyone to download Composer and then install dependencies without having the internet. Um, and it failed. <laughs> so um, it it uh, worked well enough for the first 15 minutes of the tutorial, I believe, maybe, maybe 20 minutes, um, just enough time for everyone to get Composer installed and get um, the Torrent Proxy repository added to their global configuration. Um, I think everyone was able to Composer show Silex Silex and get information. Uh, but after that, the Torrent Proxy appeared to have lost its own cache. Like it seemed that um, it timed out its cache to packages. So right. from that point on, it kept uh, basically saying no packages were 
found, even though they were there. So that was kind of a bummer. Um, it turned out that the Wi-Fi at PHP World was awesome. They had really, really great Wi-Fi. So this was one cha- one time where it would have been better to rely on conference Wi-Fi, uh, because at that point, getting everyone off of the internal network and removing, you know, the local things would have just been a pain. So I was a little bummed about that. I spent, uh, yeah, it was a non-trivial amount of money getting the equipment. Um, and I don't know, uh, pretty much a whole weekend getting it set up to make sure that it worked right. Um, so I was pretty disappointed that it didn't work in the end, but, um, I kind of know what I need to do for the next time. If there is another chance to give a composer tutorial. Yeah. Um, it was a trial run, wasn't it? So, yep. Yeah, it was. So it, 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 I think it went really well given it was the first time. Um, attendance seemed really low. Um, there were, I think there were only eight people at my tutorial. Uh, one of the other tutorials, um, uh, actually only had one person show up. So, uh, Chris Tankersley, Tank, Tanker, I don't remember his last name, Tankers, as Dragon Man Tank. Yep. Um, I think his, his talk, uh, he showed up and there was one person there. Uh, so sort of like my experience with my stack talk, except it was a three hour tutorial. So, um, I think, it, I think it went, it was a good thing for them because they ended up just talking basically for quite a while or any, any of the slides that were, you know, this person already knew everything about, he could just go through them really quickly. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, PHP world was a really good experience. It just, uh, the, the attendance was lower than a lot of people expected. I think, um, especially, uh, I think I, I met a couple of people from France who had come over because it was PHP world and they assumed it was going to be this, this big thing. And, um, so they were kind of shocked by how few people were there. Uh, one of them had actually been at forum PHP. Uh, he didn't come see my talk, but I think forum PHP had like four or 500 people. So it was actually one of the bigger conferences I've ever attended. So, um, they were just kind of surprised. And I think, I think tech kind of surprised me too. Wow. The first time I went by the, the attendance, I kept thinking that these bigger conferences that are sort of better, well, better known were going to be bigger, like, you know, five, 600 people, something like that. But it seems like most of the conferences I've been to in the States have all been, you know, maybe the, uh, 150 to 300 range. Right. Instead, so. Um, well, I was under the impression uh, PHP Tech and PHP World would be big events, especially with the, I was under the impression the world angle, they were trying to bring together, like, this isn't just PHP, like the mainstream PHP community, but they were trying to get Drupal in uh, and WordPress, you know, because they are kind of little communities unto themselves in a, in a way, aren't they? I say mm-hmm. little, I mean, they're, they're probably bigger than the, the main community, but. So, yeah, it's quite surprising that you felt attendance was low. So. Yeah. You know, I think that a couple of things probably played into that. One is probably there's a lot of conferences now. Yeah. Um, so I think it's harder to get people to go to another big conference like that. Um, I heard a, another person talking about the fact that since it wasn't, it, it wasn't an inexpensive conference um, and the the selling point uh, to try and get people to go to one of these big multi-community conferences isn't something that a lot of people desire. Like if they can go to a DrupalCon for half the price and spend three days where they have only Drupal to, to really look at, um, that's a better deal for them because it doesn't really matter to them if there's going to be, you know, in the next room, a a Laravel topic and another room, a WordPress topic. So um, it might be harder going forward to get 
something like that to get really big. Um, the people who were there really enjoyed it. So I think it sounds like they're planning on doing another one. Um, and I think that it'll probably just keep getting bigger and better, but, um, I don't know. They might have some, some work to actually try and, you know, sell this to more people than, than are currently going. Well, so my impression, I've not been to a tech and this was the first world, so I've not been to that either, but my impression was definitely that I wouldn't say they were aiming for quite the enterprise market that Zendcon is, mm-hmm. but they're getting close compared to most other conferences. And yeah. so if, especially if, like you say, it wasn't an inexpensive conference, if they are sort of aiming for that market, with it being so close to Zendcon, I mean, if I, if I was an employer of a an enterprisey type team and I saw Petri World or Zendcon, I think Zendcon probably would be more appealing, but I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, the, the overall impression I got from everybody was that it worked. Like the, the, the multiple community thing really worked pretty well. Um, there were a lot of instances where you'd see like, um, well-known people from the Drupal community talking to, uh, well-known people from the Joomla community. And then, you know, a, a well-known person from the WordPress community would sit down at the table and they'd all start talking. And, um, there was a lot of stuff. That, that happened like that. A lot of pe- people took some interesting pictures of <laughs> uh, people uh, next to each other that you wouldn't normally see. So that that was pretty good. Um, a lot of people making comments about how they were excited that they were in topics about another platform and seeing that it was pretty much the same thing. A lot of a lot of ideas are um, very easily portable to between these different environments. So I think it, it could really help to have conferences like these to get people exposed to that more, you know, different, uh, seeing that these new concepts that are being introduced to their platform aren't new and they're not difficult and they're not bad because other people are using them too and using them quite effectively. So yeah, it was pretty good. Um, so my, my namespaces talk, uh, I, I wasn't super happy with it. Um, I, it, I've, I've given it like three or four times now at conferences and every time it's a little different. Um, but, uh, it seemed to be received pretty well. Um, and, but you know, again, there weren't the, the attendance to that talk wasn't a lot. It seemed there were a lot of, um, big talks that would collide with other people's. And since the, the audience was, wasn't as large as maybe they were expecting. And the fact that I think there were five tracks, so it was really easy to um, have some talks get overshadowed by someone else. Um, and, yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, like the, the if one if one basically if one room was packed and, and not even like completely packed to like standing room only, that meant that there were probably only going to be you know ten to fifteen people in in any of the other rooms. So um, so it was it was a lot of fun. Um, I I met I met some interesting people. Um, there was a a, a fig meetup. Uh, there were actually five, uh, fig members in attendance. So, um, there was myself, uh, Taylor Otwell, Paul M. Jones, uh, Larry Garfield and Kello. So, uh, we, we just got together and there were a bunch of other people who came and sat around and listened to us talk and yammer on about stuff. So, um, and someone did take a picture of, uh, uh, Taylor Atwell and Paul Jones next to each other, smiling. <laughs> You've seen that picture, I assume. I have, yes. Yeah. So, and I'm pretty sure I saw um, somebody's uh, 
photoshopped version with uh, speech yeah. bubbles. I can't remember which yeah. of the parody accounts it was, but one of them. <laughs> yeah. So that was cool. I, I finally got to meet Taylor Atwell in person. Uh, I've talked to him off and on, offline, um, or rather online over the years, but I haven't actually got to meet him in person. So that was pretty cool to actually finally say hi and do that. Um, we had a, uh, a code rabbi and um, MD wheel. I, I don't remember what his last, what, what his, <laughs> I'm blanking on, on his, his actual name. Uh, we did a uh, DDD uh, open spaces. Have you seen open spaces before? Um, yes, I have. Yeah. Um, so we did an open spaces. Open spaces was what, uh, the way that Eli likes to, um, describe it is kind of what, uh, uncons used to be or what uncons were supposed to be. Um, but basically you just sign up for a topic and then your only responsibility is to show up and discuss it with other people. Um, and so it isn't really a presentation as much anymore as a, as a discussion that you can have about a specific topic. Yeah. So, um, there's a software craftsmanship open space conference that runs mm. in this country, and I think there's one in Germany as well. I think it's called Socrate, and there's no talks. It literally is. It's all op- open space mm-hmm. for the full duration of the thing. Uh, bit, I'm quite interested, but I'm a little bit too uh, introverted for that, I think. Mm. I mean, I, I say that. If I actually got there, I'd probably be, probably be fine. Uh, but it's getting there. You've got to make quite a decision to uh, that you're going to go to something like that. And make the most of it, I guess, is what I'd be worried about. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what a whole conference uh, like that would be. That would be interesting. Uh, so I, I had to I had to look him up on Twitter. It's Dustin Wheeler. I it, in my head I, I have his avatar and I have his Twitter handle memorized. But uh, yeah, do you know I was I was this close to saying Justin. Uh-huh. So that's a good job I didn't. <laughs> So it's it's always good to to be absolutely sure, yeah. um, but anyway, so it was a lot of fun. Um, the uh, one of the things that we talked about at uh, at the fig thing was uh, PSR six, uh, which is the caching proposal. Um, and I I brought up something that I've I had brought up quite a long time ago, but haven't anymore. That I still see a pretty good uh, use case for a um, simple cache. Basically, just a simple key value store. Um, so I asked uh, the other members in attendance, you know, because they pretty much everyone was either on the fence or negative one on PSR six as is. And so I said, if there was another proposal out there that basically was the simple version, would that make it easier for you to vote plus one on the 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 more complex use case version? And they they said that at least one of them said yes that that would definitely make it easier to to say okay well the, we see a use case for this really complicated cash pool scheme um, but not if that's what we're saying is the only way to do it so um, right now uh, I think Jake uh, Jake Smith is going to be the editor uh, so he's going to be taking that on. He's, he's actually not a fig member, but he's been wanting to get involved. Um, so Larry Garfield and I are going to be sponsoring the, uh, proposed, uh, key value store PSR. Um, and, uh, so Larry actually finally sent the email yesterday to the list to get people talking about it. So I don't know. I think it could be interesting. Uh, I'd really like to see PSR six go for a vote soon so we can either be done with it or start using it. Um, so I, I felt like that was a, a productive 
meeting for our little group. So that was kind of nice. Yeah, definitely. I, I saw the email come through and then uh, I read a little bit, one or two replies and then got bored. Um, <laughs> which is quite happens quite often with, with that mailing list to me. But I did look and it it looks like a, a good move. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I have uh, submissions out for conferences still. Um, other conferences for next year. Um, so, I, so I don't have anything through December, which is pretty nice, actually. Um, I, I didn't get accepted to Sunshine. And I didn't get accepted to PHP UK. Uh, both of those have come in since the last time I recorded, I think. Uh, but I did get accepted to PHP Benelux, which I'm super excited about. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm excited that you got accepted. I'm, I'm disappointed I didn't. But given you're going to be there and Igor is going to be there, um, I'm going to see if I can convince the missus that it'd be a worthwhile <laughs> trip for me. Nice. Uh, yeah, so it's, not, it's not far for me to come. Um, mm-hmm. So it just means a few days away. That's all. Yeah. Um, the first thing Beck said was, "We're going to uh, we're going to Belgium." <laughs> so uh, we're 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 looking to see whether or not that's going to be a, um, a viable option for us to bring the family there. It could be kind of fun, but it could also, excuse me, could also be. Uh, uh, a bad move for us financially and time wise. So we'll we'll see how it goes. But uh, we had a we had a lot of fun in going going taking the family to London and to, to Paris. So uh, going another place in Europe would be pretty nice. Mm. But uh, do you have any other conferences that you've submitted to? No, I forgot to submit to PHP UK, which is which is rather silly of me. Mm. Uh, I I submitted to Midwest. Oh, cool. Nice. Um, and I've got a tab open for Lone Star as well. I, I'm trying to, to be honest, I was, I I put the talks I already had to, sort of prepared for Midwest in, mm-hmm. um, hastily put together a Docker introduction one because I was enjoying playing with it at the time. Right. Um, and I, I still need to work on that talk. I want to do about your code's not as bad as you think. Um, kind of um, touching a little bit on, on imposter syndrome. But also touching on predominantly the amount of learning I've done um, over the last few years, and how now I understand lots of lots of different things. I'm actually ignoring them most of the time, but it's the fact that I'm choosing to ignore them is -hmm. the important thing. Uh, You know that whole I've talked about it before. I talk about it all the time: clean enough code rather than clean code, and um, and also uh, I mentioned to you Dan that Dan North blog post about. Uh, software is not a or you know, yeah programming is not a craft and because he's worried that the software craftsmanship uh, manifesto would put too much puts too much emphasis on the uh the the code if you like rather than the value and the of the product that mm. is the output so yeah i'm trying to get a talk to get i want to get that uh, proposal written down in a, in a way that's not just me rambling and then I'll submit that to Lone Star. So yeah, cool. Um, yeah, my uh, I I've been submitting some new talks as well, and um, the one that got accepted at PHP Benelux, uh, the one was the stack talk that I've given before, uh, but the other one is uh, uh, one on ubiquitous language, which is going to be a fun one. Um, uh, I think it could be. Um, I think it'll be a lot of fun, uh, but I also am a little worried that I'm not sure how I'm going to do a whole talk on it. <laughs> so, sure um, yeah, it's, an, it's another uh, 
sort of uh, less Cody talk for you, isn't yeah. it? Less technical talking. Yep. So it, it'll be. Um, it, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to writing that one, but I'm not necessarily looking forward to. Uh, the 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 amount of time that's going to take to actually create it. So I'm going to try and work on it earlier than later, which I I've been tending to not have the time to work on things. Uh, yeah. Lately, so um, I, I have got, enough time. Yeah. Yeah, you've got a break now from conferences, and yeah, you've got time. Yep. So that'll be cool. I'm also um I'm also looking for feedback on uh the talk title for my my Sculpin talk, um. Because I, I'm afraid that uh, the, the the title "Bringing Sculpin to Life" makes people is going to make people think that it's uh, a talk about Sculpin. I think I talked about that a bit on the last episode that some people were um, confused or or surprised that it wasn't just a technology talk. That um, they kind of went in assuming it was going to be like a sales pitch for using Sculpin or whatever. Um, and uh, Jonathan Renink did a talk at True North PHP um, that I, I I helped him a little bit with the 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 abstract and the title, and it was um, from Zero to the PHP League: The Story of Plates um, was his talk title. Um, and one of the at least a couple of the people who gave him feedback was the talk title was misleading; that it didn't accurately re- reflect what was actually talked about at the talk um and uh his his response was that his talk had um evolved some from when he had originally cre- submitted it um so i don't know what his talk content was but it got me thinking that maybe i sh- i should take a look at that and if people are coming to my talks and being surprised by the content maybe that that something is misleading and so i don't know if anyone has uh, ideas out there who has seen my talk uh how I could better name the, the the talk so that it more accurately reflects what the talk will be about. That would be awesome. Um, I don't know if you have any ideas, Dave? Not off the top of my head. I okay. shall give it some thought. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think it's important to have the, the talk title talk about the fact that it's going to be about Sculpin because it is all about Sculpin. Like, it is the story of how Sculpin became a project. But, you know, creating a, a tricky talk title or creating an interesting talk title is kind of tricky if you want to use the name of the project, but yet not make it seem like it's going to be a sales pitch for that project. So, Yeah. Maybe, um, okay, the story of is a bit blunt. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe look for a few book titles and see if you can work scoping yeah. into that. Uh, the one that sprung to mind was, uh, so the, the, full, the full title for The Hobbit is something like The Long Way Round or something, isn't it? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. It's something like that. It's, um, mm-hmm. oh, oh, no, sorry, is it? There and Back Again, isn't it? Uh, the book that Bilbo's writing. Oh, I mm-hmm. don't know. Or oh, that he writes in Lord of the Rings telling about his story. Right. But, yeah, anyway, something along those lines of trying to work a, a famous book title into it. So it, it's, it is the story of Sculpin, but you're not just saying the story of Sculpin. Right. Zero to Plates was a, a nice little prefix to Jonathan's talk, if you Right. Zero to, sorry, zero to PHP league, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I really like that talk title. Um, I, like I said, I, I worked with him on that a little bit. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe his, his, I don't know what his talk actually contained. I haven't been had a chance to talk to him about that. Um, but by all accounts, it sounds like it was what he expect, what what he sort of expected. Still, 
um, because then a lot of other people went. The other comments people had were, um, I expected to learn more about how to use plates. <laughs> so, right. um, okay. um, so I don't know. I basically, I'm looking, like, talk titles can be kind of tricky sometimes. And this is the first time I've run into one where I felt like it could potentially be misleading. Um, and I'm thinking about, uh, wanting to submit it to more places. And if the people reviewing the talks don't really get it, or if they think that, oh, this is going to be a talk on Sculpin and not very many people use Sculpin or whatever, um, like I, I don't want it to be dismissed on account of people thinking that it's just going to be another talk about Sculpin. So yeah, no, I understand. No. Um, so yeah, uh, I still have open call for paper. Um, I haven't heard back from Midwest PHP yet. So you've, you've submitted to Midwest PHP as well. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, PHP Australia, um, uh, their call for papers closed. So I um, forgot that one as well. You, you have that one as well. No, I forgot. About uh, that one as well. Well, that that one is actually the next same day. Or it's the day at one of them is the the day after the other with Midwest PHP. So um, that's one of those ones where I probably should have looked before I submitted. <laughs> um, so it would be far more convenient to go to Midwest PHP and it was a really cool conference last year. But having the opportunity to go to uh, Australia could be really really cool. Yeah. Um, so. Um, so we'll have to see. I, I haven't had a ch chance to ever turn down a conference before if they've accepted me. Um, but if I, if by chance I get selected for both of those, um, I, I really don't think I can do both that. So we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah. Well, and I mean, a, if it's the day after, then you're really going to struggle because time zones and yeah. distance to travel. Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, so little, little, um, projects that I've seen coming along. Um, uh, did you see the, the let's encrypt stuff? I didn't know. Um, Tell me about it. Uh, so let's encrypt, uh, I don't know who all of the players are, but it sounds like it's going to be a freely accessible certificate authority. Okay. Um, like I think it's like EFF and, uh, I think like Mozilla and I don't know, there were like five or six different big name people. Uh, backing it and it says summer 2015. So, um, yeah, I think that could be a really cool thing. So that's something that I think is super important is the encryption stuff. Uh, but there's a really, there's still a pretty sizable barrier to entry to getting certificates and the process for creating them is still pretty burly. Um, yep. So, um, I think that if there's like a, a really good, uh, movement to get this going i think that would be pretty awesome so i'm looking forward to seeing where that goes next year sounds interesting yeah it's pop, uh, let's pop a encrypt. link in the show notes to that definitely yeah yeah it's letsencrypt.org um and uh we talked a, a couple of episodes ago about two uh two-factor auth.org or two yep um and uh i got a i think phil sturgeon actually um sent a tweet out about it uh, after he listened to it on, on that podcast because he did via that podcast. And um, someone jumped in on that thread and said, actually, that's not, that site's not very uh, accurate because most of the services, uh, most of the services listed are two-step verification and not two-factor authentication. Okay, so t tell me the difference. <laughs> well, so I tried to, I, I, I saw that and I'm like, ah, whatever. Um, I, it seemed close enough to me. Um, 
and then I started looking at it later to see what the difference was and um, ended up on the GitHub page uh, with the issues for twofactorauth.org. And um, I recognized the name vaguely and it was the person who sent the tweet. So I think this person has a tweet alarm set up for any time someone mentions, mentions this website that he's going to warn them that this is incorrect. And it sounds... It, it sounds to me like the difference between two-step verification and two-factor authentication from his perspective is that two-factor authentication requires it every time you log in. Okay, yeah, I understand, yeah. Um, which I I feel like that's more like banks that have like, you know, 30-minute logouts, and every time you log back in, you need to go through this process. Yeah. Uh, whereas the two-step verification is the, f- the first time you log in to a new s- new system or from a new web browser for example where you haven't previously logged in then you have to verify it but then you can log back into to the system from that web browser um yep. f- for a longer period of time without it um however the um the the wikipedia article when i first looked at when i w- first started looking at this stuff and kind of led me to that that website uh the, the wikipedia article mentions like if you look up uh two-factor or multi-service verification uh or multi-step verification it actually says it's a form of multi-factor authentication so the whole thing seems pretty Hmm. seems like a really subtle difference um the the reasoning that the uh that website didn't want to like list the distinction was that they didn't want to confuse people and after looking into it more, I can kind of see why. I um, agree with that, yeah. Because it, it's important to get people interested and excited about this. Um, so they just don't want to make it confusing to say, well, actually, these, you know, all but two of these are actually two-step verification. And that's not really what some people consider two-step or uh, multi-factor for, uh, authentication. But I don't know. I think it could be confusing. So anyway, um, so we talked about that a little while ago. It was interesting to see some, some of that going back and forth. Um, so anyone who listened to this before can now know that there's, there's a difference if they want to know between two-step verification and multi-factor authentication, but Hmm. our two-factor authentication. Um, but the, the reason I bring it up is, um, I saw another tweet for a project called Authy, uh, Authy.com, A-U-T-H-Y. Um, and it looks really cool, but I don't know what the security ramifications are. Um, it basically has uh, a Bluetooth pairing between your computer and your phone. So your phone still contains all of the codes. Um, and um, there's a uh, an app for Android and iPhone. Um, and then there's a, a Mac OS X app that maintains that link. Okay. So if you want to go in and say log into LinkedIn, you can choose from the little pop-up i want to go to linkedin and it will pop up on your phone and send the 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 code back automatically to your laptop and then uh, it gets copied into the clipboard so you can just paste the code directly into the linkedin uh, two-step verification thing it looks really slick um but I, i don't know if that's like defeating the purpose to a certain extent yeah because I'm, as I'm long as sure. your f- phone is next to your laptop and it's already paired, then anyone who sits down at your laptop while you're in the bathroom or whatever, still within Bluetooth range, can <laughs> log into these things. So I, I didn't really look at the uh, security 
ramifications of that. But if anyone's interested in this kind of thing, um, authy.com definitely looks like it could be, uh, could make the whole process a lot easier, more fluid. Cause it's still kind of a pain to, you know, try to, try to copy this code before it cycles to the next code. Uh, do you use Google Authenticator? I do, yeah. I use yeah, it for it, AWS. And yeah, and it goes red and then it disappears and changes to a different code and you have to type it in fast enough and. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then Nominet as well, which is the, uh, the governing body for the UK domain space. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've recently uh, introduced two factor auth and they're using Google Authenticator and that time based one time password thing as well. Cool. Um, so yeah, there was that. So, did you, uh, did you see any of the new services Amazon released from the- I didn't actually. So this, this is quite interesting to me. Um, the first one that really caught my eye was one called Aurora, which, um, Amazon have a re- relational database service. Um, they started with MySQL, but I think they do MS SQL now and Oracle. But, um, this new service is going to be called Amazon Aurora or RDS for Aurora. And Aurora is a, a new database, a piece of, uh, new, yeah, a new database, but it's MySQL compatible and it's virtually built for running on Amazon Web Services. So in terms of replication and, cl- and clustering, it's going to have major advantages to RDS, I believe. So I'm really looking forward to that and it, cause RDS is expensive and mm-hmm. I'm hoping Aurora is going to be a lot cheaper. Cool. So that's really cool. Oh, well, I'll say it's really cool. It's quite cool. That's one of the ones I think are most interesting to me. They released or they are releasing a new Docker service, um, Elastic Container Service, and that's going to work. I'm not, I'm not sure the full details, but it looks like you kind of you register, you you create a new EC2 instance like you normally would, and then you kind of say, "Add this to my Docker cluster or my ECS cluster," and that means it'll become available for running containers on. And you scale up and down in that manner. You know, you just add more servers to your cluster, which mm-hmm. I thought was really cool. And they announced a few uh, tools for developers as well. One, the main one being Code Deploy, which was like a deployment tool for code. And with it, they're going to have Code Commit, which is a like hosted Git, uh, but again, high availability because it's using AWS's services, etc. And a pipeline as well, which will be for builds, uh, like build pipelines. The Those last two haven't been released yet, but I think the code deploy one is released. I haven't looked in depth. I've just, uh, like I say, just watched the announcements as they came by. So I think they, they, it's nice uh, that AWS is still innovating and every everything they, they bring out seems to be so um, cost-effective in terms of, like, the you just pay they as they always say you pay what you for what you use and things so quite excited about those things cool i haven't seen too much about that i did see the aurora db thing um i only recently learned about mariah db yeah so heard, is it mariah or is it maria or i say maria maria yeah yeah um I, yeah i only recently really paid attention to that and realized that that was a thing so this seems similar to that right it's binary compatible api Yes. Yeah. Um, Maria is obviously more open uh, yeah. than MySQL. And mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so I've had a bit of a thing with uh, AWS and Docker in the last few days, actually. So last week I was playing around with um, 
with uh, monitoring tools, uh, specifically within Docker containers on AWS. And um, we got an email it was either yesterday or the day before about uh, EC2 abuse. And I was a bit confused, but I basically went on to the instancing question. So basically, uh, it was Amazon saying that one of our instances had been, had been reported for large levels of traffic and denial of service uh, attacks. So I went on to this particular instance, started up TCD, TCP dump, and there it was, loads of traffic. So I turned off the Docker containers one at a time, find out, because these are all just uh, containers I was playing with, you know, they, they weren't in production or anything now. And I found out which one it was, and it was one for Logstash. And strangely enough, I had uh, Matthew Taylor tweeted at me the other day, and he showed me one of his blog posts about uh, using Logstash. And a link to it was a, a another of his blog uh, posts about uh, vulnerability in Elasticsearch. Now, Logstash doesn't have to use Elasticsearch for backend stuff, but it can do. And I, I had I actually read his blog post because it was very effective. Uh, it was about getting an Amazon EC2 abuse report. So I'd read that post, followed some of the links, and made the decision that the version of Logstash I was using wasn't vulnerable. And yet, actually, it turns out I was vulnerable to the exact same thing that the exact same problem that Matthew had had. Mm. Uh, but it was a bit of a weird one. So he'd had a problem with Elastic Elastic Search version one point one. Now, when I clicked through the link, Elastic Search and Logstash are both provided by the Elastic Search company. Okay, so Elastic Search one point one was vulnerable, and Logstash before version one point four point two was vulnerable. Now, I was using 1.4.2, so I thought everything would be okay. But as it turns out, so there was no, there were no vulnerabilities listed for Logstash 1.4.2. But one, that version of Logstash actually uses a ver, an embedded version of Elasticsearch that's imported during the build process that is vulnerable. Hmm. And so I was kind of conned by that, I feel. I'd actually gone to their site to look up vulnerabilities for the version of Logstash I was using. Mm -hmm. And one of the products that they bed with Logstash was a vulnerable version. So, I mean, I worked out quickly enough, but I thought it was a bit, I don't know. I think that's a bit irresponsible Mm -hmm. myself, but yeah. Was it just, was an oversight on their part or was it intentional? I don't know. Um, I don't think it had taken much for them to repackage yeah. Logstash and bump the version number with a, a secure version of Elastic Search. Mm-hmm. And it was um it was a it was actually only a setting that uh, to toggle. Uh, by default it allows um executing scripts as part of the request. So basically you could send a particularly crafted L uh, a particularly crafted request to Elasticsearch and it would remote code mm-hmm. execution. So yeah, that was a bit annoying. Took me a while to track down, wasted a bit of time. Yeah, that's never fun. I've only recently started to look at Docker a little bit. Uh, we talked about it on IRC the other day. Um, I think I'm slowly starting to understand how it could be useful. I'm still not really sure how it's all that different from a, a VM, other than I understand it's not a VM. Um, it seems like it seems like to me there's a, a lot of overlap between. Um, how you provision a VM and what these containers are. 
like if you have like a script that boots up your VM and provisions it, um, it seems like the, the container is a similar thing that the, it's just that rather than doing the provisioning once on your, let's say like your vagrant machine, when you bring it up and you provision it, uh, it seems like it does that every time the container is brought up. Um, but it, se- it seems it seems like an interesting concept, and I'm sure that if I actually played with it, I would understand more what the differences are. Yeah. Uh, but just from from an outsider without having played with it, it sort of feels kind of similar to automatically provisioning an environment um, and then packaging that in a way that it can be deployed anywhere. Yeah, it's the packaging and deployments that's, that's the important thing. The provisioning mm-hmm. is just a unnecessary step, if you mm-hmm. like. The nice thing about the provisioning is that when you do rebuild, so when you do provision again, it only works out the differences. So it would. So if you had provisioned a machine with uh, Apache and you now required MySQL, it would take your container that has Apache on, add MySQL, and then store the diff. Mm-hmm. And you would push the diff up to your servers. And like that. Do you see what mm. I mean? Yeah. You can't do that with VMs. No. 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 They're much more lightweight because yep. they don't use a, their own kernels. They use the, the host's kernel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds super interesting. I'd, I'd love to try it yeah. sometime. Well, I, I, just... I'm, I still not fully clued up to you know to the actual uh lxc container things mm-hmm. but i just find it really interesting and agile yeah. that's what i like about it cool so for work stuff um uh i had a conversation with jordy about composer issues with breaking out packages um it's kind of a long-standing issue that i've had that it's difficult to work in uh, a multi-package environment where, uh, say, so you have a, a project that depends on, uh, you know, like a couple of different library projects, where you're actively working on the library projects at the same time. Um, this re- there's really no good solution right now for how to do that. I th- I think you actually showed me a symlink solution, right? You use a yeah, I you... just a uh, symlink thing. Yeah, out. yeah. Um, you know, and I've I've done that on a a couple of projects where I've taken the time to write a, a little bit of code to do that manually and i don't know I, I feel like that's a problem that it would be nice if we could solve that in an elegant way that didn't have to be like a one-off every time you want to do it to try to figure out how you're going to do it this time um so i have, I have a project right now where I, I would ideally like to have this client project broken out into multiple separate repositories where each thing could be worked on independently but worked on at the same time when you're doing like integration at the end um, or if you're trying to, to address an issue uh, with the final system and be able to uh, basically look at all of my development code at the same time so I could tweak any part of it more easily. Um, but we didn't really get anywhere with that. There's a, a really old pull request for a link command, um, which is supposed to do something with symlinks somehow. Um, I don't know. He he said that that he hasn't seen any proposals yet that that look good <laughs> for how to yeah. solve this problem. Um, it's hard, isn't it? And, yeah. Um, I mean, the the subtree splits. I don't know how sustainable that is for 
you know what I mean, going yeah, forward. Yeah, it's 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 really not, and it's a necessary evil for projects like Symphony right now. Uh, like Lar- I, Laravel might still be using MyScript, I'm not sure, uh, to create the Illuminate components, and um, I think Guzzle actually finally bit the bullet, and they are no longer doing subtree splits, but doing proper independent uh, repositories. Yeah. Well, um, te- theoretically, as you components get more stable it should get easier shouldn't it mm-hmm. um, i almost feel like if you're going to bump a major version of the overalling framework you might want to then build everything together and then split but mm-hmm. uh you know as through time you'd, you'd think that you, it should be, become more feasible to actually have them as separate entities yeah because your your, your pain at the minute is during active development Mm-hmm. when the components themselves are still in active development when eventually you know for them to be packages and worthwhile being a package they should be stable and shouldn't really require much more change you know you yeah. know if it, if they require that much change as in if you if you require to update a package on a regular basis to make to to make your your parent package work then that that suggests that that package isn't a stable dependency and therefore it probably shouldn't be a dependency if that makes sense. Yep. So we didn't really get anywhere with that, but I did spend some time uh, discussing that with him just because it's something that I run into pretty regularly. Like on, on most of my projects, I I don't want the limitations of Composer and Git to really dictate stuff on my code if I can help it. And I just can't get around this one. It's just so much easier just to develop everything in one big repository. Um, so... Anyway, I was kind of a uh, one of the things that I have been doing for work lately is trying to do some package design and figure out how to package one of the projects that I'm working on. Um, I've also been working with Palantir. Um, I talked to them mm-hmm. uh, to see whether or not it was all right for me to discuss it, and they said, "Sure, that'd be great." Uh, they're actually really excited that that I'm working with them. Um, I've been, I, th- I think I started maybe a month or two ago uh, on one of their projects, and it's been really cool. I've been working on. Uh, a team that Larry Garfield is on. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun working, actually seeing how uh, some of these people work in real life on real projects. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, um, and there's a, there's a bunch of people on the team um, and it's been really great getting to know them and I'm starting to uh, try to figure out how to follow them on, on social media stuff so that I can, you know, interact with them outside of work as well. Yeah. But it's been, it's been really cool. the The project's been interesting. It's a it's a Symphony two application, um, and they're they're s- somewhat new to some of the Symphony two things, um, and they've gone all in on all the bundles, <laughs> and it's been it's been interesting. Uh, they're running into a lot of uh, a lot of the edge case stuff where um, I don't know. We've talked a lot about bundles, and sometimes they're they're good, but they can also be detrimental to the project um, because they'll do like 80% of what you need to do. And then, you know, you have to hack around it for the, for the rest of it. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of projects that require like JMS serializer. So uh, you have to really learn how JMS serializer is working in order for it to actually uh, do you some good. So yeah, last night I was working on a, a, um, another project and I, I was kind of running into uh, the same thing where um, one of the the Hedios bundles 
requires JMS Serializer. And I thought, well, I don't really want to use JMS Serializer necessarily for everything. Um, so I went back to just the Hedios library itself, because it's, I think it's Wilderand's yep, that's right. Hedios library, uh, the Bazinga, whatever. Um, and even the core Hedios library required JMS Serializer. So everything requires JMS Serializer. So, um, I ended up uh, falling back to the Silas channel because I, I could swear there was a, a HAL library that didn't do something like that, uh, that didn't use Serializer and was like, you could actually build HAL objects. Uh, so I went back to Silex channel and someone uh, reminded me it was uh, no carrier, uh, the no carrier HAL package. Uh, so I, I went and looked at that for my, for my project because I didn't, I didn't want to rely on all of the JMS Serializer magic. Um, so, so yeah, it's uh it's interesting to see um, how far that they've been able to take the project using these bundles, but um, and, and they've done a lot of really great things really quickly. But when you get to a certain point, uh, the magic starts to break down a little bit. If you know what I mean, definitely. Um, yeah. uh, and it just becomes complicated because you don't know <laughs> what's what is where at a certain point. It's like, well, it's it's not serializing correctly in this place, and then, then you back it off to JMS serializers. Well, that's that's doing it right, and then you find out that the uh, the the uh, FOS REST bundle is doing something with a serializer that's that's actually the serializer that's getting used in this particular case to serialize your object. And it doesn't have all of the stuff that we've been doing in this other place. And I don't know, it just, it seems like it can become very muddy very quickly uh, once you start trying to integrate all of these different bundles. Um, so it's, it's been, a, it's been a fun experience seeing this, this project, how, how it had come together um, and, you know, all of the bundles that they're using and you, I didn't get to go see it at London. There was a, there was a talk about, I think it was Chris Chris Wallsmith's talk, how Chris develops Symphony applications. You said that he does very thin stuff, right? It's like just raw Symphony controllers talking to raw doctrine objects, like no, not doing any um, middle layer or anything. Um, no, he does do middle layer type stuff, um, hmm. but he takes the anemic domain model approach of with his entities. So they are pure data containers mm -hmm. or rarely contain anything complicated. And mm -hmm. he's all in on doctrine so that um, he basically uses doctrine events to then fire symphony events based on what's changed in the entity. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. Um, so what I'm trying to say is he's he separates logic out in in a way that he has listeners for events, which you could be considered domain events, which mm -hmm. you're familiar with. But his domain events get fired by the infrastructure, and not only do they get fired, but quite often get determined by the infrastructure. If you see what I mean, it would almost be quite trivial for him to do it in a more DDD way, where mm -hmm. his entities raise the events and doctrine, and the infrastructure of doctrine takes them from the you know, queries the entities in the unit of work or the identity map and mm. then shovels the events onto a dispatcher. But he does it that way and um, it works for him. It's not necessarily the way I'd like to do things, but yeah, uh, as, as he says at the beginning of that talk, and I love it, he says uh, he really likes giving this talk because he can't be wrong. 
<laughs> and, nice. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I guess I guess how you de- how you're describing that to me, like I don't know where the the logic is in the, in the the event handlers, but it sounds very similar to what what their what Pal- the Palantir team is doing here, where uh, they're relying a lot on the infrastructure to do things, uh, a lot of event listeners, a lot of lifecycle event sort of things, where there's nothing controlling. There's nothing doing work on the, the the doctrine entities themselves. Everything is like serialized into them. Um, yeah. Everything comes from them and originates from them, and everything is is free to be updated at any point. There's no there's nothing that controls uh, what can change uh, values on an entity. Anything can, uh, yeah. and anything and goes. Getters and setters. Yeah, getters and setters. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which uh, it's the way that you described. Chris's talk seems a lot like what what they're doing, um, at least in my head, without having seen Chris's talk. Um, and you, I, I haven't seen Chris's talk, and you haven't had, had the benefit of looking at uh, Palantir's code, so <laughs> uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to see if there's actually a mismatch there. But it sounds to, to me, it sounds like it's kind of similar. So I have I haven't worked on a project like that in in quite a while where there isn't that abstraction, and it's kind of freeing in a way. Um, there's no middle layer that you're building like what i'm what i'm considering the middle layer where everything is kind of isolated and doctrines yeah. is just an implementation detail um but it's also kind of constricting at the same time because there's a lot of things that you want to do that are that that people can do and it's like well there's i can't stop them from that <laughs> you know yeah, they can do whatever definitely. they want to there you have to so. you have to trust people at some level but then mm-hmm. it's so easy to fall into traps isn't it I, yeah. i've been through the same thing that you know i mean i mentioned using I'm still yet to build anything in Laravel, but I'm actually going to be using it for the control panel for repo box. And mm-hmm. at some point, I tried to use Laravel straight with the active record implementation, and I just couldn't get on with it. It was it was frustrating me and feeling weird um, mm-hmm. having used Data Mapper ORM like Doctrine for so long, and before that, just my own type uh, implementations. And then I started using. So I, I thought I'd give it a crack with the one of the doctrine integrations for Laravel. And that started out good, but then I quickly found out that it wasn't going to work too well with the um, the SAS billing type module they have for Laravel because that mm-hmm. kind of made the assumption that whatever was going to be have the bills or be billable had a save method on it, which, of course, with the, the data mapping isn't going to work too well. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so I, I'm just it. It's gonna bother me, but when I build the control panel for Reaper box, or when I get carry on building the control panel for Reaper box, I'm gonna go all in with the framework, and it's gonna mm-hmm. be dirty and quick. But yeah. It realistically, I'm just not getting time to work on it at the minute, so I'd have to go dirty and quick. See yeah. how it goes. Yeah. Um, I'm working on another legacy project that. Is, has been interesting. It's very what I it, it's what I would consider code that I was looking at like probably five years ago or more. Um, objects were just uh, a way to encapsulate code and HTML generation. <laughs> um, nice. So uh, like there are objects, or there are classes, but they're just like a, a way to encapsulate a bunch of methods and functions and HTML generation and things call it like they're all basically treated as singletons. Um, 
they're not using a singleton pattern necessarily, but you know, at the beginning of the workflow after a dozen or so require lines, you know, a bunch of objects are created and then they're passed to each other and or just accessed. <laughs> I guess there's some globalness to them somehow. Um, so it's been, it's actually been really challenging for me. And um, I don't know, it's just a, a good reminder for me that 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 code still works and that code really fulfills a need, but I can't work in it very well. It's very, very, it feels like a, uh, I don't want to say a waste of time, but it sort of does to an extent, like digging around code for 40 minutes to figure out how to change a label. It just, it seems very difficult to me, yeah. um, to, to try and, and, and do that. Um, so I, that's, that's another project that I've had on my plate that, um, <laughs> I need, I need to spend more time on it. And, uh, but every time I, I do, I just, I just get blown away by how much work it is to figure out how to do anything in there because, you know, there's form validation and, and form building and all of these other things are just like, you know, appending HTML to, uh, dollar STR. Um, and just like, you know, thousands of lines of code that have logic mixed with, well, okay, now we're going to add this extra bit of HTML to the code or to the, the page. And then at the end, it prints it all, I guess. I don't know. It's very, um, I, I can see where, like, if that was your experience with PHP 10 years ago, five years ago, I could see why you would have left and never looked back. <laughs> um, and I think that's uh, a lot of people's opinion of PHP is probably based on seeing a lot of code like this and probably having even worked in it for many years being like, this is just awful. I need to do something else. And if you look at something like Rails with, with the proper abstraction, I can just see how someone would be like, wow, Rails is awesome. PHP is horrible and just yeah. basically never look back. <laughs> on the, uh, on the flip side of that, something Igor and I were discussing the other day was that, and it ties in with the talk idea I had about your code's not as bad as you think. Um, you know, the whole thing of like, if, if you read code you wrote six months ago, if you if you're still happy with it, then you haven't learned much, or you you should be learning more. Or yeah, I was having that a discussion with Igor, and that that quite happens to me is the opposite. I like read code I wrote maybe a year ago, and I think before I knew better about certain things, and it's actually better than the code I wrote in between, because the code I wrote in between, I was trying to learn and trying to possibly shoehorn new concepts and ideas and strategies into my mm -hmm. code without really knowing what I was doing. Yeah. So when I was ignorant of particular methods and uh, techniques, the code I wrote was clean enough. And then I started learning stuff and actually tried to apply these things, which was necessary for me to learn them. Mm -hmm. But the product of my learning might not have been as good as it could have been. So uh, do you see what I mean? So that's why I'm trying to get at that whole, you know, your code's not as bad as you think, or your code yeah. wasn't as bad as you think. Yeah, yeah, and that that sounds that sounds really good. I I keep going back to projects like WordPress where they have a really good templating system that works really well. Like you can build plugins, you can build templates and distribute them, and WordPress deals with them great. I have yet to see any uh, what I would consider to be like a modern framework do anything nearly as nice for like 
like end user developers wanting to um, basically contribute like a template system or um, or a template using like a uh, a template system of some sort. I just haven't seen it. And like even like I've I've gone to great lengths in Sculpin to try to build a theme system. And you know we talked a little bit about the the difficulties that I was seeing without coming up with like a standard um, standard basically like layout and package for everything. It's really difficult to make a reusable theme that anyone can drop into their site and use it. And definitely. So you know I've been I've been trying really hard to get that going in Sculpin, and I'm kind of blocked because I don't know where to go from here because that that's just a problem that I haven't been able to spend enough time solving or spending enough time thinking about it to come up with an, an adequate solution. So it's been sitting in dev for like nine months. And I, I don't, I don't know. It would be, it would be nice to solve that problem, but I, I see that over and over again, that there are these really cool systems coming out, but I haven't seen anyone really address that problem very well. Have, yeah. have you? No, not really. I mean, WordPress is about the only one that springs to mind as, you know the the plugin and theme ecosystem for WordPress is very impressive. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of rubbish in there, but you know the cream does generally float to the top. And mm-hmm. whenever I do have to try something, it's usually pretty good and used to work. Yeah. So yeah, I mean we, we're we're at a point now where people poo poo WordPress because you know it's not awesome and it still uses functions and it's got this massive backward compatibility thing with a lot of cruft in it but they can do some amazing things and on the other hand we have people building these beautiful symphony 2 applications that can't be extended in the same way that wordpress can it like can't even come close to it um that at least that i've seen so i don't i don't know it's it's i feel it's like a a different scale or a different uh uh, a different part of the same thing that you're describing where in between we're like we're we're at the in between you know wordpress is like good enough and then we're at the in, in between part and then at some point in the future i'm hoping that someone solves this this extensibility thing where you can add plugins to two projects like a symphony app or theming a symphony app and it's just not a problem anymore that would be wonderful but i i feel like we're at what you're you're kind of calling the in-between point where we're making things better but it's making certain other things way more complicated yeah you you mind if i totally change topic for a second no actually actually i think we we only have a a little bit of time before we need to check out right so maybe this could be our last thing yeah, well, I was actually, um, it was actually, t- I was actually thinking about our tagline on the website. And the first thing is about being dads. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, I mean, our, uh, our Luke and Evelyn are the same age, roughly, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So, does Luke? When does Luke start school? Um, you know, Beck would know that better than I would. Um, I think since he was born at at the end of. No, since he was born in January, I think there's some weird timing issues. Um, like I think he would have to be five by the time school starts. So he won't be five next fall when school starts. So I think it's the next year that right. like kindergarten actually starts. I see. I was, yeah. I was just wondering. So, uh, cause Evelyn will start in, on, in September. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got to uh, sort of fill out our application forms for her now, and it just—it's it, scary how quickly 
I mean, yeah, you hear it. You hear it's such a cliche, isn't it? How quickly they're growing up. But mm-hmm. to think that she's going to be starting school in September, um, I, I'm going to cry that day. I think it's going to be really weird. Uh, yeah. I know for a fact my wife will be. Yeah. Tears will be streaming down her face. So even if I stood a chance of not crying anyway, mm-hmm. uh, when I see that, then I'll probably start. But yeah, it's just time flies, you know. And uh, to think that my daughter will be going to school is just—it's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. That that same texting art, uh, podcast I was listening to. Um. They were talking about I. I honestly don't remember who is who. Who who just had the kid. Just had the Justin. Um, Justin was talking about how um, the his his son is just now like fun <laughs> and actually responding, like looking at him. And before he was just kind of there and like would like look through them, and he just didn't do anything. And um, yeah, uh, and the so that's Justin. The other guy is Jason. Jason. Um, and Jason was, was saying, "Yeah, I told you that." And Justin said, well, yeah, I know you told me that, but until you experience it, you don't really realize it. And it's, it's so true. Like, um, you, you hear these things like, you know, your kids will grow up fast, but it, you, and you hear them and you, you, you can even understand that. But until you actually experience it, it takes on a whole different meaning. And, yeah. um, yeah, like, it's cause like right now where, um, uh, Beck's up with her sister again and the, and they just had a baby boy. And so he's at, he, I think he's finally just moving to the stage where he might be smiling and whatnot. Yeah. But, but otherwise they're just there. They're just like, they just kind of like are there and they don't do anything. They don't really interact with you for like the first little bit. And yeah, you, you don't, you hear that, but until you actually experience it, you don't Absolutely, really, yeah. yeah, relate to it. So I, I don't, gone. I, I don't know what it's going to be like when Luke goes to school for me. Uh, my my wife sometimes says I'm a robot because I don't cry for things. <laughs> um, but you know, I very well may be crying when Luke goes to school. Yeah, finally, I think it's the uniform that'll do that'll set me off when I see oh, her. Yeah. You know that first day when she's got got up, got washed, and got put a school uniform on. I was like, oh. yeah. But um, <laughs> I was thinking like a good measure of like how how the grown up is. Um, so you know the code of view, uh, the metric for a code of view is uh, WTFs per minute or whatever, the <laughs> XKCD. Well, yeah. I was thinking like with children, it's almost like the number of surprises per week or something. Because when they're mm-hmm. at, like, so obviously during that first stage when the babies, they don't do a lot. They they don't surprise you that much. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, when they start doing stuff, they can just they surprise you all the time. There's you know, the weirdest things that they've learned and picked up on the things they say, how quickly they can do things. You you catch them doing something that you never thought they'd be able to do. Mm-hmm. And of course, that steeply increases at this age. And then I guess, I don't know where it peaks, but at some point they're going to have learned so much and, you know, their vocabulary is going to be amazing. They're going to be able to read and write. They're going to have their own personal interest, mm-hmm. you know. The things that actually surprise you are going to get fewer and fewer. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. You know, um, at the minute, Evie's learning to read and she's doing really well. Although I'm a bit worried she she memorizes too much. You know, she she sat there and read uh, a book that she I know for a fact she can't she can't read half the words. She'll <laughs> she'll sit there and read books to Rowan and she's just doing it from memory and her memory's very good. So she can. It looks like she's reading, but she's just, you know, yeah. she she knows the story basically. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, so she's surprising me with with how well she's doing with that. But obviously, that's you know that's going those surprises are going to run out at some point. And I'm sure I still surprise my parents every now and then. But mm-hmm. you know, my surprise is kind of like slightly bigger ones, like uh, you know, like Rebecca's pregnant or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, I was just I was just thinking that about that earlier. Huh. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting idea. So should we um we we kind of ran out of time here. We can talk about the other thing next time, perhaps. Yeah, well let's let's uh, commit to it now because we've done this a few times. We say we'll talk about that thing next time. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll commit to it. I there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about uh, leading up to it anyway, so um, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely have that on the next one. We can use that as our our lead in. I think we we totally would have had time to do it if I hadn't been late and you hadn't had to leave right away. Yeah, well, time zones are tricky, aren't they? So yeah. So next, so next time on the show, we'll be talking about finding time for things because we both struggle, don't we? Yeah, and uh, even finding time for the podcast. You know, it's like you're trying to yeah. fit in a, a two-hour discussion. Point, point in case, right now. Yeah. So okay. Thanks, Bo. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Dave. Uh, I guess we'll call that a wrap. You've been listening to That Podcast with Bo and Dave. You can find Bo on Twitter and Google Plus at Bo Simonson and Dave on Twitter at Dave Development. You can subscribe to this podcast and review it on iTunes. If you'd like to review us but don't feel like we've earned five stars, email us so that we can talk about your issues. You can also subscribe to this podcast with RSS from our website, thatpodcast.io. From our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter to get super secret extra content from Bo and Dave sent directly to your inbox. Like the music? You can thank Gorillo for allowing us to sample the track Dust Kingdom for our intro and outro. You can find Dust Kingdom and other tracks by Grillo at grillo.bandcamp.com, spelled G-R-I-L-L-O.